So we're gonna start and define trustworthy. It means one who is deserving of trust, go figure, right? If you're trustworthy, you deserve some trust. One who is true or one who is reliable. Now the Haley definition, I threw it in there. The one who can and will come through for you. Trustworthy, the one who can and will. And trustworthiness has a lot of dynamic to it. Because you can't just stamp, uh, you're trustworthy on someone with no evidence. It needs some history. So we're going to explore that today. We're going to dive in first into Psalm 31. If you have your Bibles, you can head there. You can also go to themovement.org to grab notes. It's a great location for those. So Psalm 31, starting in verse 1, it says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lend, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. Pay attention to that one. God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy. For you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversity and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Epic right? David, the guy who wrote this psalm, was in the midst of trial. And what did he do? Turned to God. Why? Because in verse 5, it says, because he's the God of truth. We're going to explore that in a second. And then what did God do? He came through for him. He was reliable. He showed up because he can and he will come through for his people. This is who God is. He shows up for us. Then David takes the psalm and he explores it even further. And he's like, hey, this worked for me. You should do it too. Turning to God in the midst of trial is the most productive thing that you can do. Turning to him in the midst of anything is the most productive thing. But especially in the midst of trial. Turning to God. Now, let's look at this word. God of truth. In Hebrew, a Hebrew word holds so much depth way more than our English language. So it's gonna take a handful of English words to describe one Hebrew word, which is absolutely beautiful. I'm like, let's do it. Throw 10 words on top of that. So this word, God of truth, your Bible might've said God who is faithful, God who is true, God who is reliable. Different translations use this because they all mean the same thing. In Hebrew, it's El Emet. Come on, say it with me, El Emet. El is God. Amet is trustworthy, faithful, true, and truth. This is the full expanse of that word. One big Hebrew word. Now, this word is super special because its root is a word called aman. Now, this word means to be firm or to support. So to be trustworthy, doesn't it come, it's kind of that supportive piece 
When you lean and you rely upon this table to hold me up, right, there's a support to it. And it's firm. If this was like a stick being held up by duct tape, I don't think I'd lean on it, right? Because girl, girl would fall down. This is firm. That's what it means, this root word amon. It's also the word that we derive amen from. So at the end of a prayer, when you say, in Jesus' name, amen, you're saying, and so it shall be. So it will be firm. So it can be relied upon. When girl preaching and you say amen at her, you're agreeing, and so it will be, and so it will be firm. That's what you're saying. This root word is so powerful, and it's where this name of God comes from, El Amet, the God who is trustworthy, the God who is faithful, the God that can be relied upon, the one who can and will. Say it with me. Can and will. He's going to come through for us, and I believe being trustworthy is such an important piece because it's going to deepen my devotion. I'm not going to be devoted to something that is inconsistent, that changes constantly, that I actually can't depend upon. I'm not going to give myself over to that because that's risky. That's dangerous. That's going to open me up to get hurt. But he is different. Now, one more fun fact about this word, El Amet. The original Hebrew language didn't have vowels, Let's just make it more complicated, right? They added those later to simplify the language. So Elamet is made up of three consonants. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the middle letter, and the last letter. Let's go, right? I saw that and I was like, now, Lord, you know. You know what you're doing? The intricacies of who he is. Why? Because he has been trustworthy from the beginning all up in the middle bits, and all the way to the end, right? Amen? This is who he is from beginning to end, and we're going to explore more of that next week when Julie shares about the great I am. Hello. This is going to be a good one. I'm so stoked for this series because it's, it's going to draw us into such deeper understanding. So trustworthy. We need him to be trustworthy. Now, Henry Cloud wrote this rad book on trust, and he said that there are five elements that contribute to trustworthiness. We're going to look at them because, like we said, you don't just say, like, oh, he's trustworthy, and then leave it there. It has to be rooted in something. So these five things are essential to being trustworthy. The first is understanding. Being understood. If I'm going to trust you with something deep connected to my heart, vulnerable. I need you to understand it. Has someone ever been trying to support you in the midst of like something really hard and you're like, you just don't get it. They're trying their best. Such good intentions, right? But you're like, you're just missing it because you don't understand. God is not that God. He is an intimate knowing God. He's connected with us. I love in verse two, David's crying out for this. Bow down your ear to me. Hey, can you hear me? He's asking for this. Can I be understood, heard, known? God, can you understand this trial? And God responded, verse seven, you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversity. This was God's response was unknowing. Hey, I'm gonna know you. I'm gonna be close to you in this. First John 5, 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. 
John 17, right? The sheep know the sound of the shepherd. Y'all are a bunch of sheep. He's the shepherd, right? We hear his voice. Sometimes we have to learn it. We get more familiar with it. But he hears us. There is an exchange of understanding. So check. God's got the understanding piece. Second one is motive. Someone isn't trustworthy if they're only in it for themselves. Is that who God is? No. He lives a life of sacrifice for who? Us. This is who he is, a giving of himself to us for our well-being. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? For if God is for us, who can be against us? He's in it for us, right? So he's got understanding. He's got good motives. Third thing, ability. Knowing that he's able to accomplish what we need him to accomplish. I got an oil change this week. And it, car maintenance is important, regular car maintenance. I can be for your car. I understand your car needs maintenance. I have, an understand, I have good motive. I want you to be safe. But that stops at ability. I could not change your oil. I will not be trustworthy to make that happen for you because I don't know how. I can check it if it's low. My dad taught me that. <laughs> the one good thing. And put water in the car. I know a few basics. I know how to change a tire. Let's go. But I cannot change your oil. I will not be trustworthy for that need that you have. But what do we know about God? He's the source. Remember that element word? Beginning, middle, end. He has been trustworthy. Why? Because he is the originator of everything. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. So we know that he has understanding He's got good motive, and he has the ability to accomplish what we need him to do. The fourth thing, character. And this isn't just moralistic, but this is in an unchanging way. Something isn't trustworthy if it isn't constant. If I lean on this table and it falls one out of four times, that's not a good, Right? When we lean on him, does he ever fail? No. Because he is constant. He is the place of our supply. I love Numbers 23, 19 for this. It says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak, then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I'll answer those questions. Uh Uh-uh. He doesn't. This is who he is, the God who can and will come through for you. He is trustworthy. Why? Because he's got understanding. He's got, what was the second one? Motive. He's got ability. He's got character. And the fifth one, the important piece of this is a track record. One time being trustworthy does not make you trustworthy always. It takes time and history and legacy. God's showing up over and over and over again. What do I know? I've got a book full of God coming through. I've got a life of testimony. You have a life of testimony of God coming through. If you feel like you're not carrying one of those testimonies, just wait. Because what I know about him, if it's not good, he's not done. And he's going to keep showing up and he's going to keep doing a work in your heart 
to make it happen. Amen? And so it shall be. So these five things combined give us this picture of a God who can and will come through for us. We're going to look at the story of Esther. This is a cool book. It's 10 chapters that I am not allowed to read all 10 to you today. We'd be here for a while. So I'm going to summarize this book in the Haley version. It's going to be a little more animated than what you'd read. But it's, I mean, people say that the Bible's not interesting, man. This is like telenovela stuff. You're going to find out. This is what's up. So the book starts, it's after the Babylonian exile. This is when the Jews got kicked out of their homeland. Things are pretty hostile. And some of them are starting to make their way back, but most of them are still scattered. So that's kind of the climate. Jews, nervous. So there's a king, and he has a big party. Because he's a big dude. He's over 27 provinces. He's got lots of land, lots of power, all these things. So he likes a good party. Throws one and wants his queen to come show up and like be flaunted in front of every, like, look at my queen, right? This is what he tries to do. She refuses and he gets mad. People are going to get mad in this book. Just be ready. They're going to, lots of people are going to get upset. So the king gets mad he calls a group of, of advisors to him and is like, what am I going to do about this? So they create a plan where the queen's going to get kicked out. And then they're going to find a bunch of young, beautiful virgins to come and be paraded before the king. This is like the origins of The Bachelor. Picture it. Picture it with me. This is where it came from. Nothing new under the sun. This is where I'm convinced this is where they got their idea. So all these young virgins are going to be presented to him, and he's going to choose a new queen. This is what's going to happen. So they go out. They choose a bunch of women from all the land, and they are brought to the palace. One of them is this girl named Esther. Now, her parents have passed away, so her relative Mordecai is over her care. So he gets her in. He's like, all right, Esther, let's put you in in the plot here. And they are brought, all of these women are brought to the palace for 12 months of preparation. If you think getting ready for prom takes a long time, getting ready to be paraded before the king takes a long time. So 12 months of preparation go by, the parade begins, and Esther is chosen to be queen. Like, cool, woohoo. She becomes queen. Jump to another scene. Mordecai's hanging out in the, in the city area. And he overhears two guys who are planning to kill the king. Not great. So he like baton tosses. He's like, all right, Esther, I need you to tell the king. So Esther tells the king about this plot. King gets mad. We're going to get mad a lot. He kills the two guys and then is like, thanks, Mordecai, for saving my life. Scene jumps to this guy named Haman. Don't get too attached. We don't like him. (laughs) He gets put on the scene and is promoted to where the king says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Everyone that passes by you has to bow and pay homage to you. And he's like, yeah, okay. This is my deal, right? If you want a fast ticket to like pride, this is it. Have people bow before you. So he's like strutting his stuff. And Mordecai, our buddy Mordecai, refuses to bow before him. And he gets mad. He gets mad. So what does he do? decides to punish Mordecai and all the Jews. Mordecai is a Jew, so he's like, I'm not just gonna harm Mordecai, I'm gonna take down his whole people. 
So Haman goes to the king, gets in his ear, and devises this whole plan to send out letters to all the provinces. And on the 13th day of the first month, every Jew in the province is going to be killed. Haman's feeling great about himself. Mordecai finds out about it. He's so distraught. He tears his clothes in grief. Esther finds out. She's so distraught. It turns into this whole thing that draws us to this essential conversation. Well, it's letters being passed between Mordecai and Esther. Where they're trying to figure out what are we going to do. So let's pick up in Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It says, And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Right? Because Esther was nervous. She's like, what can I do? It's like, girl, you're on the line too. So your head's in the game on this one. Verse 14, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But if you and your father's house will perish, yet who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. This is those famous words. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shashan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Boldness, all right? So we've got a plan put together, but like I said, or like it says in scripture, it was illegal and worthy of death if you go before the king uninvited, but he's got this like big scepter, think like preschool talking stick. If you get touched with the stick, you can talk. Like, you're okay. This one, though, is a little more serious. Like, you're not going to die. So Esther shows up to him, tapped on the forehead with the royal scepter. She's safe. King asks, hey, Esther, what do you want? And she requests a banquet with Haman and the king. He's like, done. Boy loves a good party. So he shows up. They're having this banquet. And the king asks again, Esther, what do you want? And she says, I want another banquet. Maybe she got a little nervous, right? She's trying to, like get the courage to have this really big, bold moment. So they plan to have another banquet. And Haman leaves that night feeling pretty good about himself, right? I just got invited to two banquets with the king and the queen. This is shaping up to be pretty great. Great. But on his way home from this banquet, he runs into Mordecai, who again does not bow before him. And what does he do? He gets mad, right? People are getting angry left and right. So he goes home and is ranting to his wife. He's all upset. And they make a plan to build gallows where he's going to get permission from the king to kill Mordecai. So he's, he's on it. He's like, I'm fuming. This is going to happen. Like the Jews are going to get killed, but Mordecai's going first. So they, they move through this motion. But that night, the king has trouble sleeping. So he calls his aides to come in and read something called the Chronicles. This is like can't sleep, so you picked up a history textbook type of moment, right? Like, this is going to, like, soothe me to sleep. And they're reading. It's the history of everything that's happened. And they come across the testimony where Mordecai saves him from the two guys that are trying to kill him. So in that moment, the king's like, well, did we honor Mordecai? To which the aides are like, no, no, you just kind of like high-fived him and moved on. So he's like, okay, I need a plan. I need advisors to come so I can decide what to do. Now we're going to read. And because it's too good not to. Chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Haman was nearby. So Haman came in 
And the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Right? A little bit of pride. Okay, sir. A little bit. And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one, the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man that the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Homeboy thinks he's planning his own parade. He's not. Remember, we're not attached to this one. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Ouch, right? Like a big old wop. So Haman's gotta go and he's gotta do this big plan for Mordecai who he was trying to get killed. Probably a little fuming, he ends up back at this banquet. Remember Esther's second banquet that she requests with the king. And Haman, so they're sitting there, and the king asks again, hey, Esther, what do you want? And this is her moment. She begins to plead her case. She begins to share that she is a Jew herself. This is the first time that she is sharing this with the king, and that her people are about to be killed in all the land. And the king gets mad. We're catching on. The king gets mad and he goes, who would dare to do such a thing? That's Haley's words for it. Shaking his fist in the air. And Esther's probably like, like homeboy right over here. So king's pissed. He grabs Haman, puts him on the gallows that were meant for Mordecai, like hello redemption story. He gets killed. But we're still sitting on this moment that the Jews are still set to be killed. This has gone across all the provinces. So we have a moment, another moment, where Esther has to boldly go before the king, which remember, she could get killed for, but a little bink, right? Royal scepter, tap on the forehead. She's okay and gets to stay. And again, the king asks Esther, what do you want? And she pleads her case again. Hey, my people are still set to be destroyed. Can we redeem this? He gives the green light. They write the letters, they go out, they throw a big feast. It's a great big hoorah party, have a good time. And on the day that the Jews were supposed to be killed, the opposite happened. And everyone who stood in opposition was actually killed themselves. What a massive redemption story. So the big feast happens, they decide to do it every year, and the book ends with Mordecai being promoted. What a cool story, right? The book of Esther is so powerful. What a redemption. The God who can and will come through for his people. But here's what's fascinating about the book of Esther. God is not mentioned once. He's not mentioned one time. And sitting back and kind of sitting in this, I was going, what, is, like, what does that symbolize? God, we know you're present always. This is who you are. You're trustworthy. You're there, you're with them. But have you ever been in a trial and it feels like God is just so silent? That he's not speaking like, God, where are you? I need you. And he's like, I'm at work, friend. I'm doing things, I'm getting it done. I know sometimes when I'm in the midst of the trial, I'm a little too chatty. 
I've got all the list of all the things I need to learn, and I'm not listening. Many things contribute to this, but I want to challenge. We probably all have one of those moments in our life where we're like, I'm not sure God showed up in this one. I don't know that he came through. You might be in the middle of your Esther story right now going, will he? You might be at that moment of, if I perish, I perish. But I wanna tell you that the God who is trustworthy can and will show up for you. He's got a history and a legacy of doing so, even if his name isn't mentioned. He's gonna show up, even if you're not gonna give him credit, he's gonna come through for you. Even if, because that's who he is, it's his nature and he can't deviate from it. He can't deter He can't help but do this thing for his kids, which is an absolutely beautiful part of him. Why? Because he is element. This is who he is. It's his identity. This is the God that shows up for us. However, there is a moment where we all have to decide if we're going to respond to the God who is trustworthy. He can sit and be trustworthy right over there all by himself. But if I want to have a deep devotion with him, I need to decide and take that step to say, hey God, you're worthy of my trust because you're trustworthy. Meaning I'm going to rely and depend on you. The definition of trust, to trust, is to place confidence, reliance, and dependence upon another. This table can be sturdy and I can choose not to lean on it all day long. Or I can place my trust in it and I can lean and I can rely and I can depend. And I know that's easier said than done. Statistically, trust in our society is decreasing in nearly every area for a lot of reasons that we're not gonna get into, but it's just happening. Statistically, Gallup did a poll. Only 42% of believing Christians, this is just people who say, God is my God. 42% believe that God can hear us and will intervene. Less than half. 28% believe he can hear us, but he can't do anything about it. Like, hey, God, help me. He's like, great, heard you, can't do it. We lost that ability piece. And 11% think he can do neither. These are believing Christians. Because have we encountered El Amet, have we encountered the God who is trustworthy and faithful? Have we encountered him, but we stood back and didn't actually put that trust in him? Hey, it's cool that you're that over there, but I'm gonna stay in my little safe cocoon right here. Are we gonna take that step forward? I'm gonna tell you a story, a quick story. Years ago, I went to missions training school in Mozambique. I spent three months there and I left with some level of expectation of like never coming home. Spoiler alert, I'm here, I came home. But (laughs) I was ready, like my bags were packed, I had a whole plan in my mind. And about halfway through school, I started to have this growing expectation that God was gonna commission me, which happened a lot at this school, that people would receive like these words of clarity of what they were supposed to do, where they were supposed to go, and all of that. So I had this kind of growing anticipation and we get down to like the final two weeks and a speaker came in, which it's like this, right? We show up and a speaker talks and then they minister to whatever they're sharing about. 
So he's sharing and he's, he's teaching his word and then he drops into this time of prophetic words and he just starts calling things out in people left and right. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like people are getting beautiful words and it's just so, it's such a great moment. So I'm sitting there and he pauses and he goes, oh, okay. Like he's talking to God, right? I'm like, you're having a converse, quiet conversation with Jesus right now. And he goes, oh, there's someone here who's waiting for a commissioning. And I'm like, yeah, like a lot of us are. I didn't immediately go like, that's me. So I'm just kind of sitting there listening and, and he goes, okay, okay. And he starts, I can't, even, I can't even begin to tell you how much of my life story he read like a book. Down to, she's from Hemet. She's the youngest of four, wait, five children because there's a foster sister and like literally details of my life. Pushing those buttons to the point Basically, the only thing last to say was being like, Haley Michelle DeRoche, get up here. That was the last moment. So he's going on and on and on, and no one's coming forward because I am like a puddle on the floor. And he pauses and he goes, the Lord is commissioning you home. And I would love to say that I jumped up and ran forward with excitement, but I didn't because that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to stay in Mozambique forever. I wanted to be sent to a far off nation. I was ready for that. And so I'm sitting crumbled, weeping, because I don't know if I wanna say yes. And my roommate's like elbowing me like, girl, it's you, like, come on. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready to say yes. And he's up there, he's just, he's so confident. Like, I know she's here, where is she? What's going on? Where is she? And then he hears it and he goes, oh, She's not ready to say yes. She doesn't know if she wants to say yes. I'm like, why you gotta read every part of my inner thoughts right now? Because it's vulnerable. It's intimate. And I had to choose in that moment. I had determined he was trustworthy. But that was an area of my heart that I hadn't said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deem you worthy of my trust. I had withheld it. I had my own plans. I had decided what my future was gonna look like. And he's like, but this is what I have for you. Will you trust me? Will you lean? Will you rely on me? Will you depend upon me? And so I like crawled my way to the front and I was like, that's me, and I just don't know what to do. I'm, I don't know if I'm ready to say yes. And he's like, can I pray for you? So he lays his hand on me and just starts praying courage and faith and trust into me. And I crumble on the floor, and I'm having like a moment of repentance before the Lord because I didn't want to say yes. And I'm like, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry my yes is withheld. I'm I'm. I'm, I don't wanna be that, but I don't know how to take this step forward. I don't know what it looks like to trust you in this area because it's been hurt before, because it's been taken advantage before. How do I hand this back to you and trust you? And he began to play in my mind the history, the stories, the moments with my family, with my friend of him showing up in my heart in that moment to the point where I went, I whispered it at first. I say yes. I say yes. 
And he probably heard it from the Lord. He's all, what? Got super low, what? What'd you say? And I'm all, I say yes. And it was a moment where I put trust back in his hand in this area, I was withholding it. Today, you might be sitting in the midst of your Esther moment at any point of this. You might be getting positioned right now in a place that just doesn't make sense. You might be sitting on the news of destruction. You might be sitting at that moment of, if I perish, I perish. You might be sitting walking into the king's area going, I might die right now. Will that scepter tap me on the head? You might be sitting in a trial like David going, okay, I'm gonna lean on this legacy or bow your ear to me. You might be at any point of this journey and I wanna tell you that God is worthy of your trust to respond to him and put that trust in him. I wanna invite you guys to stand because we're gonna have a moment right now where we give an opportunity. If you wanna use this altar space for this moment with the Lord, please, we've got ministry team who can come alongside you for this because this is a big moment. This is a renewal of trust moment. He is worthy of our trust. But will you say yes to that one thing today? Are you willing to encounter El Amet? this morning. So I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes and we're gonna ask God a question. Together, out loud, let's ask him, El Amet, is there an area of my life I am not trusting you in? And trust, trust, <laughs> trust what you're hearing. Maybe it was a picture, maybe it was something you saw. And right now, just in dialogue with God. Have a moment where you renew that trust in him. Even just a statement of, Element, I'm gonna trust you. God of truth, I'm gonna trust you. Lord, we hand this area back into your hands, trusting that you are the God who can and will come through. As a step of of trust, I believe so much in identifying this and marking this moment. I wanna invite, if you're, If you have an area that you are handing to him for the first time, um, you can do one of two things. You can raise your hand, it's the safer option, or you can come forward and have a moment with Element this morning. If that's you, you can raise your hand, ministry team can come find you, or you can come forward. Element, we're taking a second right now to be bold to re-put that trust in you. I speak right now a courage, a confidence, a healing, disappointment. Is anyone struggling with disappointment? Like, man, I've just been disappointed too many times. How can I trust him in this? Will you raise your hand? Yeah, it's just a sign, like, 
Lord knows, but this helps us. Yeah, come on right now. We say disappointment, be silenced in the name of Jesus. You are a liar and you cannot speak. You cannot lie against the testimony of God who from the beginning of time has been El Amet, has been the trustworthy God. And I speak to your heart right now. If you're fighting disappointment, if it's not good, God's not done. He is not done with that piece of your story. Right now, we open up that piece of our story back to you, Lord. We invite you to maybe rewrite the narrative. Sometimes it's a perspective shift. But Lord, I invite you to come back and actually do something fresh in this area this week. Let trust be renewed in this area because disappointment has been silenced. And right now for the rest of us, would you open your hands in front of you? Because we all have areas that trust needs to expand, it needs to deepen. So right now, God, we, we say yes to you. We open our hands to renew this trust and this faith with you, expand it. Even in the areas where there is a bit of a lean, Lord, help us lean more. Help us trust deeper. We wanna encounter you as the trustworthy God that we can rely and depend upon. We can share those deep, intimate places of our heart with at all moments. We don't have to second guess. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to fear because you are the God who can and will come through for your kids. And I bless these truths to be solidified in every single one of our hearts right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, family, and so it will be.